G'day everybody, my name is Elliot Waters and you are listening to the Dysregulated Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in. Today's episode is the second of the Discharge Papers series, where we go back and have a look at some of the reports compiled by doctors and psychiatrists upon me going up to the hospital during some of my darkest times. But before we get into that, if you're enjoying the show, which I hope you are, feel free to like, subscribe, give us a rate and share it around with your mates. And I'm happy to report that on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify, we have a total five-star rating across the board. So thank you everybody so much for your support. I do appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach out or see what I've been up to lately, you can do so on Instagram at elliot.t.waters. So today's episode sees us go back to last year when I was completing my honours thesis in psychology. And I'll tell you what, it was a terrible year, my 30th year, and it was definitely the worst on record, no question. So I'll describe a little bit what it was like and the context in which I found myself at the hospital on this particular occasion. So a normal day would go like this. I'd wake up at like 10.30, 11 o'clock in the morning, but I would stay in bed till at least, I don't know, one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon. And while I was in bed during this time, I would just ruminate and ruminate on things in the past that went wrong, mistakes that were made, and I would also be looking to the future and catastrophizing and just seeing all these bad things that are about to happen to me. Now, of course, there wasn't a great deal of evidence to support my idea that everything was going to go wrong, but that's the whole problem with these mental health disorders. You're not living in reality. They create this pseudo-reality And it's so difficult to see through the fog and have a look at what's really going on. So a lot of my anxiety is centered on this thesis. So to begin with during the day, at the beginning of the day, the anxiety would be telling me that the thesis represents basically life or death. If we cannot complete this thesis to a high standard, well, that means we are a failure and always will be and all our hopes and dreams are dashed. That's how significant this thesis became. And although there was, I suppose, a little voice saying, look, this isn't the be-all and end-all, you know, we need to give this our best shot for sure, but this isn't life or death, it just got drowned out by this negative emotion. So anxiety was very much the main player of this period, but depression played its part too. I think it was secondary like it is currently. So the depression was very much caused by our inability to do the things that we needed to do or this perception that we didn't have the tools and the skills and the drive to be able to complete what we needed to complete. And that's a very depressing thought. But it was the anxiety that was putting the brakes on. And it was all because this thesis represented essentially in my mind during that time whether we were a worthy individual or not. So very heavy stuff. So I used to lay in bed and I would look over at my desk and see my laptop, which was closed, and instantly I would get this huge wave of negative emotion. It was crippling, so much so that it felt like I was being kicked in the guts and I used to even get into the fetal position. I used to, I remember I used to say out loud things like, please make it stop, please. It got so bad at one point, this is true, I don't know if anyone else has done something similar, but the bed that I was on was not low enough to the ground. 
So I was so anxious that I used to lay on the floor in the fetal position because it was lower to the ground. I don't know why that was. It felt, I don't know if it felt more safe or maybe I deserved to be on the ground because that's the sort of person I was. I'm not sure. But that's how bad it got. I used to lay in the fetal position on the floor and the bed was too comfortable. I didn't deserve to be in the bed. It was too comfortable. So that used to happen. And then eventually at around, say, 5, 6 o'clock in the afternoon, my anxiety would change a little bit. So it would go from the constant sort of thoughts around this thesis represents everything to all of a sudden we're not doing it, we're not doing any work that we should be doing. Oh, my God, due dates are coming soon. We need to get up and do some work. So that's where it sort of flipped from freeze mode. I've spoken about that before. So anxiety, there's three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. So often for me, I go into freeze mode, which is where I go into the fetal position and I just pray and to whoever, anyone, to try and relieve the pain that I was feeling. And then it would flip to fight mode and all of a sudden I would be scared that we weren't getting the job done and due dates were coming oh my God, we need to get into this right now. So what used to happen then, because I used to go to the university at the library late at night to study because it was a good study environment, so I thought. I used to get in the car and then I used to drive around Newcastle for hours. I would drive past the uni three, four, five times where I just could not go in because of the fear that I was feeling. I used to just do laps of the Newcastle city for hours on end. Then eventually that anxiety in fight mode would get so high that I would finally go in and then I would be super depressed (laughs) because I'd wasted another day of potential study time and I was behind and I had to get stuck into it right here, right now. And then I would study until 3, 4, 5 a.m. through the night. And that used to happen every day. So you can imagine I'm living on the edge every day. Every day, it feels like life or death. Although it wasn't, of course, I know that now looking back, that doesn't matter because my perception of my reality was so clouded by these mental illnesses that every day felt like war and it was life or death and the thesis was the battleground in which I was waging this war. But once I got to uni and and signed into the computer and was ready to go, that wasn't the end of the story. So as I said, depression and let's say generalized anxiety disorder were definitely a feature leading up to me every day actually getting to the university. But then once I was there, there were more problems. Social anxiety disorder. Okay, so it is the fear of negative judgments and appraisals from others. So I used to go there late at night so I could avoid people. And I used to always walk in and think everyone was looking at me, look at, looking at what I was wearing, judging me. And that in itself was a huge barrier to study. And then, of course, the other diagnosis, the other disorder I've got that really played its role was Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder, ADHD. So my ability, once the computer was on, to actually stick to doing my work versus scrolling aimlessly on Facebook or Instagram was severely hampered by ADHD. So for every hour someone else puts in, it felt like it took me three to four hours to do the same amount of work. And I reckon I'm pretty close on that. There would just be so much time devoted to staring out the window or looking at other people, but not looking too much because if they look my way, well, social anxiety kicks into gear there as well. So the big four of depression, 
generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, and ADHD were really, really taking a toll. And this was happening, like I've said, every single day. This pattern would would occur every day. And it was so, so taxing. And during this time, not only was I in bed, but I used to sleep a lot as well. And I do put that down to this constant hyper-aroused state, constantly on edge, because you can imagine being anxious, that gets your sympathetic, sorry, yes, that's right, sympathetic nervous system going. So that's where all the adrenaline kicks in and all that sort of stuff. So you can imagine burning a lot of energy, but really not achieving anything at all. And that just made it worse. Also, during this time, you could say I was abusing my stimulant medication. So at this point for ADHD, I was prescribed dexamphetamine and I was having a lot of it just to get out of bed. Now, the thing with dexamphetamine is this. When you first start on it, you get a lot of euphoria, lots of euphoria. But the longer you're on it, that euphoria tends to go away. But the the effects of increased attention and focus and stuff stays, which is good. That's what you want. You don't really want the euphoria to stick around too long because that's how addiction can start. But I remember I used to take a lot of it to try and induce that euphoria state Because obviously, if you're euphoric, you're not anxious, you're not depressed, you're feeling good. And I used to really try and ramp it up so I could somehow get into that state. Lots of caffeine was used as well. And try and get in that euphoric state, which wouldn't last very long, but it would last just enough to get me out of bed, grab me books, grab me laptop, and head to uni. So that was also a big problem. And it was a big problem because obviously, amphetamine keeps you awake. So I remember there were nights that I would come home from uni and I was completely out of it. My brain was just fried. (laughs) And at some point, or at some points, I remember I used to think there were people outside my door that were going to come in and attack me. This, This is true. Geez, it was looking back now, last year was horrendous. Anyway, I used to sit and rock backwards and forwards next to my door at 4 a.m., thinking that people were outside and someone was going to get me. Because unfortunately, what goes up must go down. So when you have a lot of dexamphetamine, you get the euphoria eventually. But when it starts to wear off, the anxiety and the depression is so bad. I just cannot put into words what it feels like when you first get that feeling it's starting to wear off and then you just plummet across all mental health metrics. You just plummet. So there were times there where I was so anxious, I thought people were out to get me and I used to sit next to my door, which was locked, of course, and rock backwards and forwards and just listen for footsteps. That's how bad it got. And that happened a lot as well. So, and that was a good day. That was a good day when I actually did get the uni and was able to study. So, and this, like I said, went on for months. So anyway, so I got to the point where I took myself up to the martyr because I was just so so totally out of it and I did not know what to do. And this is what happened. Okay, so let's have a look at the discharge papers. Mr. Elliot Waters, 30 years old, that would be me. James Fletcher Campus slash Marta Mental Health Service. Okay. First seen by the triage nurse, voluntary presentation with increasing depression, history of borderline personality disorder, ADHD, Denies any current thoughts of suicide. 
I must have faked that because that was a real big part of what was going on. Pleasant and cooperative on presentation, of course, of course. I'm lovely to deal with. Okay, this is what the psychiatrist said. Dear doctor, thank you for the ongoing care of Mr. Elliot Waters, a 30-year-old undergraduate of the University of Newcastle who presented voluntarily due to increasing depressive symptoms and anxiety. The current episode was precipitated by schoolwork and related stress. Okay, so I've got to interject here because on this particular episode, remember I said all it would take were a few little things to go wrong and it would tip me over the edge, so to speak? Well, big things happened on this occasion. So I got up, it was a Saturday morning, and I got up. I run the man walk here in Newcastle, which is a little initiative where I get blokes together and we just go for a walk and we talk and we support each other if if needed. Often we just talk about our football teams and how hopeless they are, but it's a great environment for if someone is going through something difficult that they can talk to people they can trust and get some advice that's the man walk anyway so I got up Saturday to go to that and I noticed my car was missing from the car park and where it was meant to be there was glass everywhere so my car had been stolen my car was gone but not only that the night before I'd been at the uni doing study and I'd left my laptop and all my written notes and everything in the car. So not only was the car gone, the laptop was gone, my written notes were gone, because I'm old school C. I don't usually type notes up on the computer. I write with a pen and paper, old school. Seems to work better. Anyway, that was all gone. Weeks and weeks of hard labor and study was gone. You know, all my assessment sheets, which I'd written notes on, gone. My very expensive Beats headphones, that was the hardest part, gone. So you can imagine something like that really rocks you, especially when I just bought this car. It was a new car and it was gone. So we'll continue with the discharge papers now that I've mentioned that. His car containing valuable properties, including his laptop, was recently stolen, leaving him with no access to his notes and drafts of his assessments. Hours had gone into these drafts and they were gone. For most of today, Elliot was afraid to read an email from the psychology department in response to his notification to the school of his situation. Together, we were able to role play and get him to open these emails and check his phone for other notifications. That's also an important point. It wasn't just the inability to open the laptop. I couldn't check emails. I couldn't check messages from my friends. I wouldn't answer phone calls because I was convinced that it would be bad, dire news. And again, there was no evidence to suggest that this was the case. But these mental illnesses just play tricks on you. And if they really grab a hold, like I said, it's so hard to see through the fog and have a look at what the reality actually is because your perceptions are so clouded. So I remember that email, I was petrified to open it. And together with the psychiatrist, we did it. I remember my hands were shaking. I could barely look at the phone. I had the phone on the table closer to him because I felt like, I remember that quite clearly, I forget, uh, remember that it felt like it would be more comforting and I was safer if the phone, which represented everything bad in the world at that point, was closer to him because he was this level of authority and I guess a safety net. But together, we were able to open the email. And of course, as per usual, it was all good news. But anyway, like I said, mental illnesses play their little games. Okay, and we continue. 
Elliot stated he has used more than the prescribed five milligrams of dexamphetamine to manage his distress, stay awake, and function. Elliot presented with long-standing emotional instability, poor problem-solving and decision-making, and he has attracted various diagnoses including bipolar affective disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, tension deficit hyperactive disorder, and, to round it all out, borderline personality disorder. Elliot has a family history of mental illness, including depression and bipolar disorder. Current medications, lithium, 450 milligrams twice daily, Lexapro, 10 milligrams daily, quetiapine, 100 milligrams at night, halanzapine, 5 milligrams at night, dexamphetamine, 5 milligrams in the morning, propranolol, 40 milligrams once daily, and Viagra PRN, which I do not use often enough. Tell you what, you read all those things, I am high maintenance. Under the care of his private psychiatrist, Elliot lives alone in shared accommodation in Mayfield, Newcastle. He has a mild drug and alcohol abuse history, but he has been abusing his prescribed dexamphetamine in the context of his emotional distress. His parents are supportive financially and with the provision of accommodation when needed, but Elliot has stated that he has had lim- sorry, that they have had limited understanding of his emotional disorder in the past. Elliot presents as highly anxious, highly emotional un- emotionally unstable, characterized by generalized anxiety disorder with a strong tendency for catastrophizing thinking patterns. And that's all about looking at the future and thinking everything is going to go wrong. Elliot has no psychotic symptoms. That's good. He has, although you could almost make an argument that when I'm rocking backwards and forwards next to my door that I was getting close. Anyway, he has a reasonable insight to his situation. Come on. I think I've got more than reasonable insight. Anyway. Impression upon entry to the hospital. Situational crisis with background borderline personality disorder. Elliot's description, now this is interesting. Elliot's description of symptoms of ADHD, I believe were more of generalized anxiety disorder and poor decision-making, which is a classic trait of ADHD, rather than ADHD. I'm not convinced that he meets the criteria for ADHD nor requires Stimulant therapy, especially as he's abusing the medication. Right, I've got to stop that there. So I had a discussion with my private psychiatrist about that, although I didn't realize that that was written in here because I haven't read this until I opened it up today. So I'm learning a lot about myself again. What we came to the conclusion was that my anxiety was so strong that it was pushing all of the other illnesses aside. So the ADHD was definitely there. That's why I'm doing laps in Newcastle, and that's why when I sit down at the computer, I can't concentrate. But the real the real sort of characteristic of my presentation is anxiety. Everything else was secondary. So I'm sure when I presented to the hospital, I was showing as an anxiety patient, definitely. But maybe I didn't get across well enough, or maybe the psychiatrist didn't pick up on the fact that there were secondary illnesses at play here. Okay, discharge plan. So discharge to self, supportive counselling to seek help from colleagues, lecturers and school services. So that's all about learning or relearning to have the confidence to open 
emails and make phone calls and accept phone calls and actually look at my thesis. Safety plan discussed. So that's my risk management plan. I'm going to do an episode on that soon about what that is all about. But basically, it's a, it's a plan. So when things go south and I've picked up on that, I have this plan. I know exactly what steps to take because we've sorted it out beforehand. One dose of lorazepam, a benzodiazepine, supplied for sedation and to reduce agitation. Follow up with GP within five days. GP to kindly review mental state and continue treatment. Organize treatment under a mental health care plan with psychologist support to address anxiety and depressive symptoms. The dose of escitalopram, which is Lexapro, the antidepressant, SSRI, can be titrated upwards to 20 milligrams if symptoms of depression or anxiety persist. Oral propranolol of 40 milligrams once daily can be tried for twice daily for physical symptoms of anxiety. Elliot to please seek prompt medical attention if condition deteriorates, feeling unsafe or otherwise concerned. So that is the discharge summaries for that particular visit to the hospital. So there are a few changes made. The interesting, I suppose, point was that they gave me lorazepam, a benzodiazepine, to help with agitated state sedation, try and get that anxiety down. That certainly works. But the problem with benzos is that they are highly addictive and cannot be used long term. So I was only given that one dose and that was all. And what's interesting too is benzos really wouldn't help me in this situation because my anxiety was being driven really by the fact that I was not able to confront this thesis challenge head on and being sedated and sort of zonked out is not a way to get a thesis done. And that was a real part of the problem. So after this, I, I went to my psychiatrist, like I said before, and reconfirmed that ADHD was definitely part of the story. But I suggested some medications which I thought might be helpful, but in hindsight, he was definitely correct in saying that we don't want to dull you down. We want you to be as sharp as possible because you need to get this thesis done. And I think that's a bit of a lesson too. You know, sometimes people, you know, look at medications and just want to escape what's going on, but really the way to escape their current reality is to face it head on. But that is such a scary, scary thought for so many people, me included, and although things have improved quite a bit since that, although it went, it continued at a low level for quite a while after this uh, visit to the hospital, although things have improved recently, which is great overall, we're definitely not at that state. I haven't had the lie on the ground recently, which is good, a good indicator. Um, it's very true though. The, the issues that I face here and now is very similar in, I suppose, its mechanism of action as to the thesis. I've got things in my world that I need to attend to and the way to make my reality better and my world a better place to live in and improve my quality of life is to confront these challenges head on. You cannot shy away from what life is dishing up, unfortunately. And there's a lot of research that shows if you voluntarily face these issues head on, well, then things work out a lot better. And the research is very clear on that. So that is the story of my little visit to the hospital on that particular occasion. I remember it was terrible. I was in the waiting room. I've been up there a few times, unfortunately, not recently. And I remember some other times I felt really safe there in the waiting room. There was my first visit there when I was actually admitted onto the ward. I remember there was someone there who was who was suffering from 
from stimulant abuse, a little bit more, I'd say, than what I was doing. Um, and they definitely were showing psychotic features. But even then, I wasn't concerned, even though they appeared a little bit aggressive, um, because I felt really safe up there. And I could sort of block out the rest of the world and just focus on me within the walls of that hospital. But this time, I remember I was up there in the waiting room for hours, and I was petrified the whole time. It was just a continuation of what I felt previously. It had just... I suppose the anxiety had latched itself onto a new context, a new situation, but it was the same feeling. And I remember walking away from the hospital this time without being satisfied because although I knew I needed to take this challenge head on, I didn't really have a choice in that. I was really hoping there might be some sort of, some sort of magic remedy that would just make this so much easier. And unfortunately, after this, I realized that there wasn't. The only way out of this mess was to somehow keep digging deep and finish this thesis and push aside all that negative thought and emotion. But I did change my mindset from this with the help of the psychiatrist. And it was that if I was able to complete, forget about the marks, it was just about completing the degree. If I was able to complete this, that would be the biggest success victory of my life so far. And that is something to build a life around. And I'm so happy to say that I did do that, but geez, it was tough. And there were a few visits to the hospital during this time period. And I've had a look at a few of the other discharge papers I've got. I'll tell you what, the next episode, there is a beauty coming. It is at my, it is when I was admitted onto the ward and it explains a lot about my presentation today. So stay tuned for that one. But anyway, that is the second episode of the discharge papers series. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a very difficult time last year, very, very difficult, but we got through it. And that's the main takeaway, I think, is that we did take that challenge head on and we got through it, certainly. So thank you very much for listening. As always, I do appreciate it. If you are enjoying the show, please give the podcast a rate on your favorite podcasting app. That would be so appreciated. Get those algorithms moving and get the show to the top of the pile. That would be brilliant. And as always, if you do want me to cover a particular subject on the podcast, feel free to message me on Instagram at elliot.t.waters. And remember to be kind to yourself. And until next time, this is the Dysregulated Podcast. Bye for now.